Well, it's good to see you this Lord's Day. I see some faces that we haven't seen yet, and so welcome back into our, our assembly here on, uh, on the campus, and it's, it is good to see you. I know for some it's been a few months now, and so thank you for, for joining us today and, and those that are tuning in on, online. Well, like many of you, uh, during the last few months and has been home a lot more than we're probably used to. Uh, you've taken on some projects. During my time at home during this pandemic, I finally took on a project that I've been putting off now for about three to four years, and, uh, and, it was, and it's dealing with the mess that is my front yard. Um, we had some grass that was kind of up in front of the trees, between the trees and the street when we moved in about 12 years ago. Um, and year by year, though, it has disappeared, and now, and then all that was left was basically just red clay and rocks and roots and stuff like that. It was basically receding over the last 12 years like my hairline, and uh, not much left in either case, but I could do something about the grass. I can't do anything about this, so... So I spent uh, a week, uh, several weeks ago now, tilling the soil and, and bringing in other soil, taking out rocks and roots and amending the, the earth and finally laying some new sod uh, up there by the street. And it looks great right now. And the key word is now. <laughs> uh, but I know if I do nothing but mow and water that grass during this growing season, come next spring, that turf will be full of weeds. Uh, I know because it happened, it's happened to me before. <laughs> About 10 years ago, I planted my backyard, did the same thing, and that first spring, I, I just was fright, freaked out because it was full of weeds. And, and so already, this lawn, my front lawn, the weeds are trying to lay claim to that fresh turf, and they are popping up, and I am trying to pull them out as quick as they do. But it's, it's futile, and so if I just let my front lawn be, by next spring, I'll have weeds everywhere. All these local, native, Georgia weeds. Um, and assuming I do, there are a couple choices I can make. One, I can just kind of keep chopping the tops of those weeds off and running my lawnmower over them when the little flowers pop up and the little shoots uh, come out. Or I can try to deal with the root of the weed problem, which is the roots. And so what I learned 10 years ago, what I'll be doing this fall, is that I have to put down what something's called pre-emergent herbicide. And, and it, it, is, it is something you put down in the fall and winter. While the weeds are dormant, while the new weeds haven't sprouted up yet, you, you add this to the, to the lawn and it gets down in the soil. And, and, and while the lawn is still brown and when it's months away from growing season, I, you have to change the soil conditions to, to prevent that weed growth. Now, this isn't a sermon about lawn care. I am not Walter Reeves. Uh, I probably am butchering even the illustration, but this is my own experience. This is what I've learned. We're in 1 Corinthians 1 here. We're talking about the church. And, and so this is the connection. The Apostle Paul was instrumental, not, not ultimately responsible for the church at Corinth, but he was instrumental. God's, God was the one that, that planted this church, but he was instrumental in planting that, <coughs> he could say, that fresh sod of a new church in the city of Corinth. God used him to, and others to prepare the soil and to, to amend it and to till it and plant the gospel there, which then took root and thrived. And he stayed for 18 months and with others watered that, 
that, that new church and fed and nourished them and cared for this church. And then he left, and, he, and there were others that were left behind and caring for this body. But after he left, and probably while he was still there, uh, that, that those native weeds of sin in that city began to take over the church. And Paul gets a report from, from some folks in that church, and they, they tell him that this healthy church has now been turned into this weedy mess. It is overrun, and it grieves him. And so he, he writes this letter. And so one of the most prominent weeds in that church was division. The church was fractured. It was deeply divided. The divided by allegiance to certain people. I'm a Paul. I'm a Paulos. And so on. It was divided by uh, disagreements over certain issues. And so division and this kind of elitism was spreading through that church like crabgrass in my yard. And, and so Paul has a choice. He could, he could just kind of chop off the tops of those weeds and, 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 and mow those flowers over of, that are sprouting up, but just by kind of like laying down some rules. Here's three keys to unity. Just do these or, or separating people, okay? You can't get along. You go to that house church. You go to that house church and, and separating the people. And so that would, if, if, he, if he were to, if this was the choice he made, he would, spend, he would spend months, years, the rest of his ministry just kind of refereeing this church and all these little skirmishes that would continue to pop up. And Okay, we need to, we need to make, adjust the rules now. We need to add more rules. We need to create some programs. We need to, we need to develop some new things. Or he could get to the root of the problem there. And so in chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is getting beneath the surface, into the soil, and dealing with the root of their sin and their division. It's pride. It's pride in, in mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis calls pride the greatest sin. He says it's the essential vice, the, 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 the utmost evil in comparison with which uh, he, he calls unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and other sins. They're all mere flea bites. But pride, this is, this is a, in accordance with what the scriptures teach. And, and the only herbicide that, that is really capable of dealing with this particular nasty weed is the cross. And so the cross gets to that root problem of pride and boasting that fuels so much of the division in the church. And so the real, the real danger of pride, as we're going to see in just a moment, is in the church at Corinth, and, and the, the danger of pride in our own lives is, is that it keeps us from seeing, as what we've been seeing, the all-surpassing wonder and beauty and glory and all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It veils our eyes from that, and so we begin to, to compare others, and we begin to look at others differently instead of seeing Jesus. So as Paul gets to the root sin of pride, he does it in a way not trying to make the Corinthians feel so awful and terrible about themselves. That's not what he does. He says, I'll take your pride down. And so self-loathing is not the opposite of pride. Honestly, it's a, it's a different expression of pride. It's kind of the darker side of pride. But he does, what his, his aim here is to redirect their focus to Christ crucified. That's what's getting at the, the root of the problem there. And so the goal, and just say, 
I, I think sometimes we misunderstand this, and it may be part, in part because of your church background or maybe experiences or just kind of your perception of the church. But I would just say the goal in our Sunday gatherings, brothers and sisters, it's not to make you feel like dirt. <laughs> I know sometimes we kind of have that perception of the church, but the goal is to redirect your gaze to Christ week after week after week and, and, and to see yourself in light of him. Um, I, I say that as we go into a letter that is going to have some very hard things to say to us. And there are, there are challenging uh, words and exhortations and rebukes that will come through 1 Corinthians. But, uh, but I, I realize there can be a mindset, and I've heard it expressed. I, there's somebody in particular that went here years ago. I remember them kind of their, their judge of a good Sunday was if they felt like garbage when they left. Like, let us have it. Like that, that's the, that's the way, it's good preaching if you just lay into us. And if you don't, then you're holding back and you're, and you're, you're not doing your job. And I say, that's not it. Uh, uh, yeah, we, what we want to do is we want to point one another to Christ again and again and again and again. Yes, there will be repentance and there will be brokenness and we'll see our sin. But that just drives us back to Jesus where there's grace and forgiveness and, and hope for change. And that's what we're wanting to do together. And that's my prayer as we do this, that we would look to Christ together in his grace so that pride and the division that, 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 that stems from it will be starved to death in our church. So the big idea, we looked at this last week, started that the message of the cross that divides humanity is what unites the church. And so we talked a little more about the first part last week. We're going to zero in on that second part today. And so the more cruciform, remember, the more cross-shaped the church is, the more cross-shaped Baraka is, the more unity we'll be able to thrive in our assembly. And so as we look at these verses here, closing out chapter 1, there, I'm just gonna, we're just going to ask three simple questions. There's no, no slides today. You can, you can get this outline without a problem. Uh, and so three, three simple ask questions that kind of emerge from the text here, just helping us see how the cross gets to the root of our disunity. First question is who? Who? Who were the Corinthian Christians when God saved them? What were they like? Second question will be uh, how? How is it that God saved them? How did he bring them uh, uh, to salvation, bring them into the church? And then third question is why? Why did God choose to save them? What, what, is, what is God's agenda in bringing these believers to himself, into himself, and into the church? All right, first question. See, right there way in verse, in verse 26, the question is who? Uh, who? Some, sometimes when, uh, maybe if you know somebody that's ever kind of broken through, maybe a young person that is really talented at sports and they get, they get a scholarship to go play at a D1 school or they even make it into to the uh, uh, professional sports or something like that or in music and they have this breakthrough in their life and, and sometimes people will come alongside them with a word of advice and they'll say something like, don't forget where you came from. And what, what do we mean? We say something like that. We're saying, uh, stay grounded. Remember, remember who you really are. Nobody's ever had to tell me this, because, um, <laughs> but I'm waiting for that big breakthrough. I don't know what it's going to be in, but kind of giving up on that dream. Um, but that, that's sort of what Paul's saying to these proud Corinthians and to us in verse 26. Look, consider, consider your calling, brothers. Don't, don't forget where you came from. 
Remember the truth about yourself. If you'll do that, your boasting will begin to shrivel and die, and you'll start to give glory and praise to God, as our brother Jim was just doing a moment ago, who alone has done mighty things for you. This is what he's, what he's saying here. Who, who were you? So who were these Corinthian Christians? So he's not trying to be offensive here in verse 26. I know it may come across that way to, to our modern ears. When he, when he says, not, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He's just simply des- describing the facts. Um, when these brothers and sisters in Christ uh, came into the church and the Lord saved them and, and they're gathered in, they're just, they're just ordinary folks. They're not movers and shakers and the influencers, as we'd say today, in, in, in that society. They're not nobility. They're not the leading men and women in that culture. That's just, that's just kind of how it went down there in the church. There, not many of you fell into those categories. There were some prominent people in the Corinthian church, we know of just a few. There was Crispus and Sosthenes. They had both had been rulers of the synagogue before they were converted, and now they're part of this church. And so they had been influential in that community. And you have Chloe, who's this pretty, uh, seems to be pretty wealthy businesswoman who's part of the church there. But beyond that, th- those are definitely the exception, not the rule. And so he doesn't say not any, but not, not many of you. Most just very ordinary people. Corinthian church was just made up of people who didn't have a reputation for that, quote, wisdom that was so highly valued in that culture. I mean, they're not wise by the standards of the world. Nobody looked to them for answers and, and you know, as the philosophers and the orators and the, and the, the great thinkers of, in their city. Nobody thought of them in that way. They're not, they're not powerful, Paul says. They weren't that. They, he's not talking about physical strength. He's talking about just societal power, political power, we might say. They didn't have that. They, they weren't from nobility. They weren't well-born. They, 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 they weren't born into money or influence. They didn't have pedigree. He's not of noble birth. And so they're just ordinary folks, plain blue-collar workers, we might say. Uh, they're peasants. They're slaves. They're freemen. And and, 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 and on and on. And so verse 27, he, gets, he goes further than that. And, and he says they were, in fact, foolish, weak, low, and despised in the eyes of the world. In summary, this is the expression he uses. The things that were not. You were nothings. You were nobodies. That's, that's the idea of that. That's not very flattering, is it? Uh, he's not, not doing well if his goal is to kind of build up the self-esteem of the Corinthian flock there. He's saying, don't forget who you are, where you came from, how, how you were regarded by others when the Lord stepped into your life. That's what he's telling them. You didn't bring anything to the table here, humanly speaking. And so, again, think of the context as he's dealing with his division. He's saying, don't let your head swell. Don't, don't begin to think that you're in a place where you can look down upon others because you have something that the others don't have in yourselves. This is what he's getting at. You know, there's another implication. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I, I think it, it certainly has implications here. Just 
don't think, when you, when you think of evangelism and the mission of the church and reaching out and, and, and the, the gospel's advance in this community and this nation and this world, don't think that God, you know, needs the movers and the shakers and the famous people in the world if he's really going to accomplish much. No, we, we think like that. If, if this influential person would trust in Christ and be saved, they have this platform, they have this, this opportunity to, to influence and to broadcast the gospel in ways that, that none of us, no, no group of ordinary folks could ever do. That's wrong. God is gracious to save famous people sometimes, and he's, he does that, but it's not because of who they are. It's his grace. It's always his grace. And, and those famous people who are saved, they understand that. They, un, they get that. It's no shame to be rich or wise or powerful. That's not his point, according to world standards, and be saved. But it makes zero contribution in your standing before the Lord. That's clear. And, and it doesn't make you more useful to God. Uh, if you know the story of Ravi Zacharias, your brother evangelist who recently went with the Lord, you, you understand that. As you know his story. It comes out of nothing. And the Lord is able to use him in remarkable ways, just like he does us. And so, but th- this is the makeup of the church, and this is why this church was so, so incredibly diverse. And in Corinth there, you had rich and poor and outcast and nobility side by side. But most of the church, Paul says, you're, it's just common people. It's, it's not that Paul targeted these people on the margins, uh, it's just he spoke to, of Christ, he and others, wherever they went and indiscriminately. And, and, and more than that, he deliberately they put themselves in positions where all types of people could hear the message of the gospel. And the Lord was pleased to save them. And so I think there are implications as we think of reaching our own community here with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, all right, getting back to the main road here. He's, he's addressing this issue of division and unity, uh, the need for unity, the problem of division. And the first thing he says is remember who you are. Remember who you are. And then they get to that second question. Uh, who, were, who were they before God saved them? Second question, how? How is it that these nobodies came to be in Christ and part of the church? How did these Corinthian believers become believers at all? That's the question. So Paul's answer, very clearly, is they are Christians not because of some flash of remarkable insight that they had and they they saw the truth for themselves it's not because they were so smart or savvy or strategic and they they figured this out it's not because Paul was somehow so persuasive or some other witness of the gospel no they would never have become Christians they would never have come to be part of this church in Corinth if it were not for this one one consideration and it's this, that they are Christians, Paul says, because of the sovereign, irresistible, saving intervention of Almighty God in their lives. That's it. He says, consider your calling, brothers. We talked, uh, it's, it's the call of God that makes a difference. We talked about this last week, and we've seen it a bunch already in the first chapter Paul talked about his own call in verse 1. The Corinthians, they're calling as saints in verse 2. And last week in verse 24, they're, they're calling into the fellowship of Christ, verse 9. Again, he's not talking about, as Jim was saying, that this general universal call of the gospel, the invitation to come. That is, uh, that is a biblical reality, too. We sound the good news to everyone. 
and, and, and say, come. But this is the mighty, sovereign, irresistible work of the Holy Spirit that accompanies that invitation. That, that works in the hearts of the hearers to bring us from death to life. This is the call of God that made them and makes us Christians. Consider your calling. And it's even more explicit in verse 27. Look at this. This strong emphasis on God's electing free choice. Over and over again. Three times we're told God chose. God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low and despised the things that are not. God chose. God chose. God chose. Brothers and sisters, you are, if you are a Christian today, you are a Christian today because God chose. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He, the electing love of the Father was fixed upon you before the stars were even in place. And because God chose, he called. And because God chose and called, therefore, verse 30, you are in Christ Jesus. That's what he says. Look at verse 30. Because of him. Not because of your wisdom or power or family upbringing. Not because of Paul or whoever it was that spoke the gospel to you. No, it's because of him you are in Christ Jesus. You and I, brothers and sisters, we have nothing to attract the love of God to us. Nothing in ourselves. We were weak, foolish, low, despised, nothings. That's what we were. That's what we are apart from Christ. Our salvation is all gift. It's grace. It's, it's a sheer, unmerited, free grace. I know that sounds so basic. It's just Christianity 101 and and, and you say, I got this, but I would just say, it's, that is something we can't ever assume, brothers and sisters. That's why we sing it all the time. That's why we preach it all the time. That's why we come. The Lord has given us a table to be reminded over and over and over again. It's the Lord. It's Christ. And so, I, so the, the moment we begin to assume that, there begins to grow inside of us these weeds of pride, thinking that we're better than others, that we have some kind of boast before the Lord, before his presence. But we are not Christians because we're better than non-Christians, brothers and sisters. Do you, do you, do you look with disdain upon the lost and think with the, there's, a, there's that tinge of pride as you look down upon others? If, there, if there's a, a lack of compassion in your hearts for the truly broken and, and the lost who really act like they're lost... You see, do you see yourselves as elevated above? It's pride. If we are Christians, it is, it is because we are, one writer says, cosmic charity cases. And God found us utterly, spiritually, threadbare, begging for crumbs, soul-starved, totally void of any spiritual resources, and God who is rich and mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he united us with Jesus Christ. It is because of him, brothers and sisters, that you and I are in Christ Jesus. He chose us. He called us. He fed us. He clothed us with the robes of Christ's righteousness. He took us in 
from our abandonment and our sin and adopted us and made us children of God. It's all of grace. It's all for free because of nothing in us but because of who he is so that all the glory goes to him. And that gets us to the last question quickly. And it's the, it's the why question. So who were we? We were unlovely, unimportant, undesirable. How were we converted? God chose us, called us, united us to his son, the Lord Jesus. It's all God from beginning to end. And finally, that why question, why did God do it this way? Why, why did he pick such weak, unattractive, unimportant individuals as these Corinthians But more to the point, for us, why did God save you? Why did he save me? There's three reasons in the text, and we'll be quick. First reason is this, to shame the wise and the strong. That wording may sound a little strange to you, but listen to what he's saying. He says, first, first God chooses the foolish, the weak, the nobodies. Verse 27 and 28, what? To shame the wise and the strong, he says, and the somebodies. And, And then he says, to bring them to nothing. That's the that's language of judgment. The idea is that the preaching of Christ crucified, that's the context that, that saves the rejects, that saves us, it is, it is also, it completely upends everything that the world values. And so God saves and judges through this message of Christ crucified. He raises up that which seems weak and foolish and seems despised and nothing in the world's eyes and judges, he brings to shame, he nullifies, renders nothing that which the world deems of value. That's what he's doing. That's part of the purpose in saving us. He, he does it, verse 29, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. He chose you. He chose weak, poor, foolish people to show strong, rich, smart people that being strong, rich, and smart has absolutely no bearing on their eternal destiny. None. If the strong, the rich, the smart are to be saved, they must humble themselves before God and see themselves as beggars pleading for mercy just like the rest of us. There's no boasting about ourselves in the presence of God. We have to to learn to sing the, the words of that old hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, Naked come to thee, to you for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's, the, that's what this is, is forcing us to make that confession. Secondly, God chooses the weak and the foolish and the nobodies. He does it this way. Why? That we might cherish Christ above everything. You see it in verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. That is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. You see what he's saying? The wisdom of the world, we talked about this a lot last week, God brings it to nothing. Jesus, Christ crucified, is all the wisdom we ever need. If you've ever traveled internationally or lived internationally, uh, you, you've, you've been to countries and discovered, maybe much to your frustration, that there are different power outlets and different voltages and different uh, you know, sockets that are required, different configurations and electrical 
systems in other countries. And so you, you maybe have invested in one of those universal adapters that allows you to plug in wherever you go and charge your phone and good for every situation. But I, I was thinking, just to illustrate, that the, the, need, the need of the human heart is multifaceted. And it's complicated. And, and what Paul is saying is Jesus is the wisdom from God that we need. He is the answer. Uh, he, is, he is the answer that's good for every situation we face. I mean, if I could put it in just plain terms. He's this universal adapter to which we may plug into to get whatever our heart truly needs, and that's wisdom from God. I think that's what he's saying. And he explains what this wisdom entails. That's that's what the, the righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, it's like unpacking the word wisdom. That's the grammar of this verse. And so we have righteousness for our guilt. Through Christ crucified, Jesus died under the judgment that we deserved on the cross. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So we who are in Christ, we now have right standing before God, we are positionally righteous in him. This is part of that wisdom of God that we now know in Christ. We have sanctification for our pollution. Here, I don't, the emphasis, I don't think, is on that ongoing, lifelong process of, of transformation, that kind of sanctification. I think that's implied <coughs> as an outflow. But I think the idea here is that objective status, that we are set apart in Christ, this is the way the word's been used already. He's going to talk much more about that ongoing work. But we are chosen by God. And we have redemption for our bondage. This is that world, word that comes out of the, uh, uh, slavery, the world of slavery, the payment of the purchase price of a slave. To, to buy freedom and then sometimes to transfer from one master to another. And, and so there, there is, the scriptures talk about this future redemption that we wait for, the redemption of our bodies and when Christ returns, and we still look forward to that. But I, again, I think here the emphasis is on what we already have in Christ. We have been redeemed, been sealed for that final day, yes. But, but what he's saying is we, we who were not, we were nothing, we now are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us this wisdom for God, everything we need in life. Our status before God is now established, confirmed, it's done, and so through no action on our own part, through no degree of human wisdom whatsoever, God worked in Christ crucified to accomplish all that was necessary for us to stand before the Lord. So what, what's his point? His point is simply this. Jesus Christ is enough. I could say it simply. He is a sufficient Savior. When the world says you have to be strong, you have to be, you have to be powerful, you have to be influential, you have to be noble, you have to be a thousand other things. What does the gospel say? You need Christ. You need Christ. That's it. Not money, not power, not influence, not rule keeping, not social standing, not philanthropy, not, not penance, not approval. Jesus. It's Christ. Jesus is the wisdom of God we need. He's our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. He's all we need. And as we begin to see ourselves Rightly, our smallness, our, our futility, our weakness, our foolishness, we begin to understand that there is this limitless repository of grace for us in Christ so that we don't need to be, in the world's estimation, strong or wise or noble 
Almighty. He is enough, brothers and sisters. Christ is enough. And he, and he chose us and he called us so that we would understand that embrace, embrace Christ as the all-sufficient one. And then there's a third reason God chose the weak, the foolish, the nobodies. And you see it in verse 31. So that as it is written, and he reaches back into Jeremiah, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let all the wise man boast in of wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in the strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice in all the earth. He says, let, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he's saved us that we might boast in him. So God's agenda in humbling us is that he might be exalted. And as we begin to see how sufficient of a Savior he really is and how everything we have is in Jesus and, it's, and he's enough, he wants to have first place and receive all of the glory. He's, he's not telling the Corinthians. He doesn't want them to boast. He's, he's redirecting their boast. They're pounding their chest and they're... They're claiming their identification with these leaders, and they're, they're very full of themselves and the wisdom that they possess and, and their, their natural understanding and their nobility, and they're, they're full of themselves. They're boasting in themselves, and he's saying, no, 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 no. It's all of God. Everything that you need is in Jesus, not in yourself, and so therefore let your boast be in the Lord. Not in yourselves, but all praise is to him. And you can see, brothers and sisters, this is that pre-emergent herbicide. It's getting at the roots. It's getting at that pride that's fueling so much of the division and the conflict and the disagreement in this church. And it, it, it gets in there for us too, doesn't it? You know, just one other thing to, to note about this passage that relates to our unity, and this is going to be worked out in a much fuller way later, and so we'll reserve a lot of our comments. But our union in Christ, which is how we receive all of Christ's saving benefits that we've been talking about, it is also, it has this corporate dimension. It's because we're uni united to Christ together. We, 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 he's going to base much of his instruction about the church on this reality. We are united then to one another in Christ. And, and so to be in union with Christ is to be in, united with all others who are in Christ and who are members of his body. Uh, again, that has enormous implications. We're gonna, we'll unpack more of that. But again, what Paul's doing here is he's getting to the root of their and our divisions. And he's applying that, that herbicide, starving that little pesky weed of pride that's so invasive in the church, causes so many problems. And the way he deals with it, again, it's not to rub our faces in it. And to, you know, get us to kind of crawl up in a ball up in a corner and self-loathe and, and throw a pity party. That's not what he's doing. He's giving them, he's giving us a bigger vision of Christ crucified. And who they are and who we are now in him. That's what he's doing. This is the well we need to drink from, church. This is it. Not the polluted well, the shallow well of the world's wisdom and values, but this deep, pure well of God's mercy, love, and grace in Christ. We draw from here fresh water constantly. The more we do this together, the more unity will, will thrive in the church. Again, I'm not advocating for some kind of simplistic, you know, put Jesus first and then we'll just all 
hold hands and sing kumbaya. We can't hold hands, but when we can, you know, we'll just, it'll be just wonderful, and, and we just smile, and, and, and it's just great. No, there's work to be done because we live in a fallen world. There's humble uh, effort and prayer and repentance and confession and forgiveness and endurance and patience and, and uh, overlooking and there's just a lot that goes into, into peacemaking and, and maintaining unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So I'm not saying it's simplistic, but I'm saying the only hope we have is as we look to Christ together, brothers and sisters. And he is, he is where our gaze is directed. And that's what our posture always has to be. It's not just where it starts. That's what allows us to endure the difficult uh, times. And so, But there is, as we do that, there is real real hope, brothers and sisters. We can be this beautiful outpost in time of what we will be in eternity. I'm not saying we'll be perfect, but we can be more and more reflecting that, that vision that the Lord gives us. And there is real hope for, for real counterculture, countercultural heaven previewing uh, beautiful unity across the lines and that tend to divide the world. And we can, we can have that in the church, and it's a wonderful thing. Let's pray. Lord, would you, would you, um, Lord, help us as we as we see these words, God, to consider, consider who we are, who we were apart from you. Consider how it was that you saved us, Lord. That it was not, it was not because we figured things out. It was not because of our upbringing. It was not because of. Uh, some circumstances. It was not because of some special kind of inclination we had that others don't. It was it was all of your grace. And Lord, you saved us, not that we might boast in ourselves or or use our status as a, as a means of looking down upon others, but you you saved us that we might cherish Christ and boast in you. And so, Lord, help us uh, to to uh, embrace who we are in Christ, and to keep our gaze fixed upon Christ as a church together, Lord. Not just as individuals chasing Jesus one-on-one, but we, we want to look to you together over and over and over again, pointing one another constantly back to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.